Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. And it is time for another book club, which is very exciting. Today, we are talking about Brittany Cooper's 2018 book, Eloquent Rage, A Black Feminist Discovers Her Superpower. And in it, she covers all kinds of ground from feminism, racism, homophobia, misogyny, the importance of friendships between Black girls and Black women, white supremacy, police brutality, white girl tears, love, family, fear, hip-hop, being Southern, respectability politics, joy, religion, and Beyonce. Of course, Beyonce. Lots of Beyonce. (laughs) All with personal anecdotes, statistics, context, and history. She digs into all the damage wrought by the structural white supremacy and misogyny in our society and how it specifically has impacted Black women. Since its release, this book has won so many accolades. It's been on so many lists, including signatures, five books that bring intersectional feminism to the forefront. Her writing is funny. It's vulnerable, precise, and sharp. She does not mince words. And she puts Black women and girls first and asks, why aren't we doing that? as a society. Right. So I actually went to see her speak. She did a tour with uh, this book specifically, and it was phenomenal, of course. She is beyond entertaining. She is so real, and she is very upfront in all the things that she speaks of through this book, obviously. And she did read a little bit of an excerpt, but it is both condemning, I think, of non-Black people, as well as refreshing to understand a little more perspective Mm-hmm. And, and trying to get to that place. But yeah, if you get a chance and she is one day out and about because, you know, no more pandemic, maybe <laughs> cross right. your fingers, that you should definitely go and see her speak because she does a phenomenal job. Yes, absolutely. And we highly recommend this book. And it is very, very informative, but also does come from this personal yeah. space, which makes it really easy to read sounds like so bland, but it does. Like you can connect to it. Yeah. It's very personable. Yes. Yes. In an interview with The Glow Up, Cooper said, what do Black women and girls need? What does it look like to create a world in which Black women and girls can thrive? That should always be the fundamental sort of opening question. 
Right. And with that, just go ahead and put this caveat out there. Obviously, I'm an Asian American woman and Annie is a white woman. Mm-hmm. It sounds weird when I say Asian American. I just call you white. <laughs> yeah, so that's legit. I mean, that's legit. <laughs> but it's kind of like, a oh, okay. Yeah, there you go. So obviously, <laughs> we're coming from a background of being spectators. And we say mm-hmm. that respectfully in that we do not have these personal experiences and we right. cannot come from that point of view and would never deign to think that we can and we should. Right. And she does talk a lot throughout this book about anti-Blackness and that needs to be a conversation in itself that it's not just racism, it's anti-Blackness that she's specifically right. talking of and how it comes to the forefront of her life experience in many ways, whether it's what she's watching on TV and trying to relate to what she's reading as a child and what is available to her her, that a lot mm-hmm. of it is not created in the point of view for Black girls or Black women. And that is really unfortunate. And I say this as an Asian woman who I didn't have that perspective much either. Mm-hmm. But my experience is still vastly different from hers because I am not a Black woman. So we're going to go ahead and put that caveat out yes, there. Absolutely. But we still think it's really important to read these perspectives because it gives you a personable idea of what is happening. It's something that you cannot understand just by being there, if that makes sense, just by being present, like just by being friends with someone or knowing of someone, you need to hear from her own words to truly understand where she's coming from. So definitely read this book, definitely get this book, definitely buy from independent bookstores if you can. Put it out there. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So Cooper herself has written for several publications, including a monthly column for Cosmopolitan, touching on issues of race, gender, politics, among other things. And she's also the co-founder for the Crunk Feminist Collective, so named because, quote, what others may call audacious and crazy, we call crunk because we are drunk off the heady theory of feminism that proclaims that another world is possible. And she's also a professor at Rutgers University of Women's and Gender Studies and Africana Studies. And and again, a frequent speaker, which I've been able to attend mm-hmm. at other universities and institutions. And in her book, she details her determination to not only go to college, but to graduate, to get out of the small town she grew up in, and how this determination sidelined many other aspects of her life, but also how she accomplished her dreams. Yeah, yeah. When you have like the singular goal, as she described it as, I do this, and this is first and foremost, and then what happens when you accomplish that thing. And one thing I do love about this book is she's very introspective and clear that she's still working through a lot of things and her thoughts around a lot of things, which is, yeah, really open and honest and vulnerable because I feel like a lot of us feel that way, especially Mm -hmm. like when you talk about feminism where maybe you did get a late start in it, like (laughs) Samantha and I have talked about. Right. And you feeling like there's this standard and you have to meet it. But what does that mean when you do like, like she's very, very clear in her love for hip hop, which is awesome. Right. But she talks about that like, well, what about the misogyny in this right. world and these lyrics? And what does that mean? And I think that's what we all kind of like talking about the idea of bad feminism and what does that look like? And are mm-hmm. you a bad feminist because you enjoy things that are not feminist? Mm-hmm. And you realize this. I think we just spoke about it when I was talking to Eve's about mm-hmm. my love for musicals, especially old school musicals. And I love this one that is ridiculously <laughs> sexist and misogynistic right. and over the top. But I loved it so much growing up and this guilt of, oh, 
what do I do about this? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a universal feeling, I think, for, for feminist. For sure. Um, <laughs> um, so the title of this book came from a former student who told Cooper, I loved having you as my professor. Your lectures were filled with rage, but it was like the most eloquent rage ever. And while this was something Cooper initially shied away from for a variety of reasons, some of which we'll talk about, um, she came to embrace it as powerful, inspirational, and necessary, her superpower. And the book details her effort to, quote, use rage with precision. Cooper describes herself as a capital B, capital F, Black feminist. So I, I really wanted to read the opening line because yeah. I love it. This is a book by a grown woman written for other grown women. This is a book for women who expect to be taken seriously and for men who take grown women seriously. This is a book for women who know is up. These women want to change things but don't know where to begin. We should go ahead and put out there, this is an adult book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you, you can't tell already. Yeah, she gets so real, real quick. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Cooper's writing is so honest and how she's been and how she's still working on her own thoughts around like feminism. And I think we can all say we've all had these moments of trying to figure out what that means. And a lot of it has to do with identity. And I will say, again, I've talked about this previously about the fact I'm trying to find my identity because I don't quite understand who I am when it comes to race, ethnicity, all of those things. And she talks about her own identity as a woman, as a Black woman, and how all these intersecting identities coincide. And, and that's the kind of the correlation is you don't realize it. You think it fights against each other when you mm-hmm. think about the old school ideas. And she talks about that too, about how feminism for so long was white feminism and how it right. is so dangerous. Mm-hmm. But coming back to the fact that this is not true and what it looks like when you actually allow them to become who you are and that this identity do coincide and do collaborate with each other. Right, right. For all of this, she uses these personal antidotes, like we said, and whether it, it is her, her single mom working to figure things out and provide for her family, her grandmother talking to her about sex, both her mother and grandmother talking to her about finding a man, her father's absence growing up and getting to know him after he was shot and killed, all of that to extrapolate on these larger issues of race and gender and politics and understanding how those things do intersect and how the individual experiences, you can't remove it from the structures that we live in. And you can like recognize both, but the influence, you can't blame uh, an an individual for (laughs) structural issues. (laughs) Right. And I think it's interesting as we were talking about how it becomes intersecting that she has to coincide what she thought was for one community could be applied to all communities, but how that looks when you are under the umbrella of the bigger intersectionality, whether it is being of a minority or a marginal community, as well as a marginal community, which could be based on race or uh, sexual orientation, all of that, like what does that look like, especially when one may seem to go against another, mm-hmm. which she talks about more later on about when it comes to Black men supporting Black women, you know, as well as uh, straight Black women supporting LGBTQ Black women. Like, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And we do have 
a lot of themes, <laughs> as we were wont to do in these episodes, to go over. But first, we're going to pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. And we did want to start with some themes that she opens the book with that uh, many of us are familiar with are the sassy and angry Black woman trope, that whole thing. Right. And she quotes, when it comes to Black women, sometimes Americans don't recognize that sass is simply a more palatable form of rage, which I think is funny because if you're trying to be nice, you do use that term, being yeah. sassy. Yeah, sassy. Mm-hmm. Right. But she continues on to say, Americans adore sassy Black women. You know, those caricatures are finger-waving, eye-rolling Black women at whom everyone loves to laugh. Women like Tyler Perry's Medea, which is a whole different conversation because I think I've talked about it before, how my family uses that as mm. their standard of the Black community, which mm-hmm. we know shouldn't be the case <laughs> because Tyler Perry's intention was to be more satirical of it. Mm-hmm. But that's a whole different conversation we'll come back to. <laughs> but also she talks about Mammy in Gone with the Wind or Nell from the old 80s sitcom, Give Me a Break. And she says, these kinds of Black women put white folks at ease. And again, as I said, Absolutely. Like the Tyler Perry movies that my parents and my brother would watch, who he loved, who I've talked about many a times that probably he's my oldest brother and I have had odds with, I guess is the best way to put it, and the most strained relationship with. He uses this as his example to him of the Black community and is often, again, satirical. 
and an over-the-top comedy that is not really meant for white audiences, mm-hmm. but because it's out there, that's what their standard is. And I will tell you, my family does not know a lot of black people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're going to put that out there and how it, it irritates the shit out of me that mm-hmm. that's their example. And she is absolutely right. They love it. They think it's hilarious. It's, it's a point of ease for them as well as point of comedy, which is dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. And we see this everywhere. Right. Like this sassy black woman character. I mean, you would recognize I, it's pretty stunning yeah. <laughs> in some ways how often it is used. And often, unfortunately, that might be the only Black character in there. Right. Or especially and Black woman character. Exactly. And how it's weaponized against the Black community in itself. Right. And so here's another quote we wanted to include. Owning anger is a dangerous thing if you're a fat Black girl like me. Angry Black women get dismissed all the time. We are told we are irrational, crazy, out of touch, entitled, disruptive, and not team players. The story goes that angry Black women scare babies, old people, and grown men. This is absurd. And it is a lie. If you have the nerve to be fat and angry, then you are treated as a bully, even if you are doing nothing aggressive at all. The truth is that angry Black women are looked upon as entities to be contained, as inconvenient citizens who keep on talking about their rights while refusing to do their duty and smile at everyone. Don't you just hate when folks yell at you to smile? I told the last man that said that to me, you smile, which I love because you know I hate that too. You're right, right. And a big part of this book, I feel like that title would definitely indicate, is about reclaiming this rightfully felt rage that has often been... Weaponized, And honestly, when it comes to Black women, almost everything is weaponized. And we could just clearly state that. But she's using this rage precisely and eloquently. And I think that is the point because she did take offense at first yeah. about being told, you're, you're, you have rage, but it's eloquent. She's like, excuse me? No. Yeah. But then thinking back, yeah. right, thinking back on what those connotations were and what it truly could be, mm-hmm. she claimed it. And I think that has been a bigger defense for specifically the Black community, specifically Black women, to have to proclaim it. Kind of like how we talk about the word bitch and how women have taken that on as a mantle because Mm -hmm. it's been weaponized against them. So the only tactic is, you know what? Okay, let me embrace this Mm -hmm. in order to, to turn this around. And unfortunately, it's a constant practice for Black women, and it has to be, but in that idea that they're always having to play the defensive essentially, Mm -hmm. because they're constantly being attacked. And one of the best examples is rage or the sassy, angry black woman. And it's kind of that same trope that we see constantly on a higher scale. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about this and examples I've seen in entertainment, and it does feel just so like dismissive and just like an easy way to laugh at what are legitimate concerns. (laughs) It really is. Yeah, absolutely. and. Cooper went on to say, Black women have the right to be mad as hell. We have been dreaming of freedom and carving out spaces for liberation since we arrived on these shores. There is no other group, save indigenous women, that knows and understands more fully the soul of the American body politic than Black women, whose reproductive and social labor have made the world what it is. This is not mere propaganda. Black women know what it means to love ourselves in a world that hates us. We know what it means to do a whole lot with very little, to, quote, make a dollar out of 15 cents 
as it were. We know what it means to snatch dignity from the jaws of power and come out standing. We know what it means to face horrific violence and trauma from both our communities and our nation state and carry on anyway. But we also scream and cry and hurt and mourn and struggle. We get heartbroken, our feelings get stepped on, our dreams get crushed. We get angry and we express that anger. We know what it means to feel invisible. Yeah, and I think that is just such a powerful quote in itself. Yeah. And it should be ruminated over more and it should be thought of more. And, you know, Annie, you and I were talking about the fact that this book is really complicated for us to speak on, as mm-hmm. we said at the beginning, but it's so important that we hear it. Yeah, and, and that's something um, that Cooper talks on a lot in this book is that there was an instance where she was heartbroken and she felt like because she was a Black woman had to like shove that down and give this speech anyway. Like, and she's absolutely right. Like Black women are people. (laughs) They scream and cry and hurt and all these things. We're not really, as a society, allowing the space for that. Right. If they do take that space, people feel threatened. Right. People Mm -hmm. think that's a threat, which is a whole absurdity in itself and racism in itself. But there's so much. But yes, we did want to talk about one of the other things, which was respectability politics. And because of these tropes and a multitude of other things, uh, we see things like respectability politics, which can get a certain distance, but they're only good for so far. To discuss, she gives the example of the Obamas, and um, she talks specifically about how Michelle Obama was policed and how she showed her rage at Trump's inauguration. Which, to me, she just didn't smile. I know. <laughs> she said it. She talked about, like, the, the bun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, of course, the comparison later now yeah. with Biden, which, of course, this was written before this time, but and how President Obama played into this in ways that were harmful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole politics, we've talked about that before, of what a tightrope it is. Especially yeah. the more identities you add in there that are marginalized, like the sharper that type rope gets. And the closer they're watched too. Uh, exactly. Especially if they're a public figure. But I think it's hilarious because obviously, A, this was written before the new administration yeah. with Biden. But B, like comparing it to now. And I'm like, well, right. in comparison to who really was the angry person uh, who was the bitter, bitter Betty in, right. in, this, in this situation. And as we right. saw, they didn't concede. They just left abruptly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Which everybody was kind of glad for, I yeah. think, in the end. But we want to talk about who was truly mm-hmm. being respectable. Hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So we did have some more themes to go over. But first, we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. 
With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So throughout this book, Cooper uses writings from Black feminists and authors before her, like Bell Hooks, Audre Lorde, Ida B. Wells. But like we've talked about before on the show and even earlier in this episode, her road to feminism was one of learning and unlearning and self-growth, letting go of some internalized toxic beliefs and working through her values and beliefs and how feminism how it makes sense to her, how how she can fit all of that together in a way that works for her. And along this journey, she encountered a lot of obstacles in terms of not just other men and wanting acceptance, but also in other women. And I do think that's something we can relate to because even if you know feminism isn't about man-hating, as they always say, the perception a lot of the times from other people is that it is. Right. And if you're in college and you're looking to to date and and you're nervous about like it, you know, maybe you're on your own for the first time, then maybe you're you're hesitant to tell people you're feminist because you don't necessarily want that attached to you and for people to think that you hate men, which again, even you might know that's not true. That's not what right. it means. <laughs> right. I think it's quite funny because she, she does talk about that. That's one of the first things she got called on mm-hmm. was saying she's not a feminist, but she's not the only one. I think a lot of, especially when you're maybe the South, I don't know if it's the South that puts it on you, that you feel like you have to be anti-feminist because feminism means hating men. Feminism right. means being ultra-liberal and ultra-liberal is a bad word yeah. as we see. Radical. Yeah, you know, as we've yeah. heard repeatedly during these campaigns as being a bad thing in the South. And that's what people have been using as a platform without really understanding what the hell they're talking about. Because I'm still trying to figure out what the hell they're talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. This radical, they're a radical liberal. You're like, what does that mean? I don't, I don't <laughs> right. understand. It's radical liberal meaning they want healthcare for everyone? Because I'm confused. <laughs> but whatever. But that's that whole same trope of what the word feminism seems to play on is this fear right. of being the other. Especially mm-hmm. in the South, especially in a very male forward dominated community. And that, I think that's, I say that because, again, I grew up not wanting to be that way. I grew up right. saying 
ridiculous things because I wanted to fit in with my white family, with my white community. Right. And this is the best way I could do it. Very mm-hmm. heteronormative ideas. I must be normal. This right. is normal, correct? And I know we see that growth and change in not only ourselves, but yeah, in people like Taylor Swift is a great example of how she refused to say the word feminism. Sarah Jessica Parker, another example. She still refuses to say it to this day, even though she's on a very female forward sexual revolutionary show, supposedly Mm -hmm. way back when. You know, like it's all these things and it is. It does seem like you're betraying the men in your life to say, (laughs) I'm a feminist. I know. You know, it is. It's this yeah. whole thing. And, and then again, this whole misogyny where women are pitted against women, mm-hmm. it is a competition to be who is the more likable for right. the men. Yeah. So. Well, it's a self-perpetuating cycle, right? Because if you're afraid to say that you're a feminist, then your friends are probably afraid to say it. Like, people are going around thinking nobody's feminist. Even if you are, you just don't want to say it, you know? Right, right. And that's the thing. I, I still remember clearly in college, I figured out feminism as in, oh, I have the right to education and not be married. <laughs> cool. I'm a feminist. But that, right. was, that was the, you know, forward thinking. Mm-hmm. And I had a uh, college roommate who said she wasn't feminist. Myself and another roommate both looked at her and I was like, you know, if it wasn't for feminism, you wouldn't be here at this age not being married, right? right. Like, you know where you are is because of feminism. And her response was, huh? And then walk away. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because the existential level of what feminism was mm-hmm. is weaponized. Again, I feel like we use that word often because it is. It's, it's being told if you're a feminist, that means you hate men. If you mm-hmm. if you hate men, you are betraying the men in your life, including your dad. Why right. would you do such a thing? You know, it's a right. whole thing. It is. It is. And and. Cooper talks about her experience similar to your friend in college, Samantha, which we'll get into in a second. But it's also absolutely worth noting that when you talk about like Black women in feminism, there is this history of white feminism. So there's like another layer of complication to the whole thing. Right. Yes. So Cooper says, we wonder why young men hate women. And sometimes the sad truth is that their mamas and aunts and sisters act as an arm of the patriarchy by parroting the refrain that girls simply can't be trusted. Which I absolutely, I think that gets left out of the conversation a lot is we do learn from examples before us and women in our lives. And they learn from, you know, women in their lives too. And that stuff gets passed down. And she (laughs) gives the example of she calls mean girl with Beyonce yeah. and yeah. watching watching women just tear down Beyonce and and in her in her mind that being yeah like a mean girl almost just like she's so successful right tear down she wasn't always this way like she hasn't always been feminist or hasn't always been strong about black women and black rights and all that stuff uh, so tear it down. Right. right. And I think there was a whole conversation and I loved it was when she was with Destiny's Child and the drama that happened within Destiny's Child. Yeah. And she's like, it has to be Beyonce's fault, obviously, because she is not, not about women. She's about herself. Who, mm-hmm. by the way, she still has really good close friends from the original group as well. But yeah, and then also we have a whole conversation within that is not trusting successful Black women because what did they have to do to get there? You know, and right. which is not true which is not it's just an absolute stereotype or some way of tearing someone down who is successful out of jealousy yeah whole different conversation and of course and if you're a black woman who stands as a proud black woman 
that's a threat, mm-hmm. especially to white supremacy in itself. And so that was a whole big conversation. But yeah, I did love her examples of loving Beyonce and having conflict emotions because is she a feminist? Isn't she a feminist? Mm-hmm. What makes a feminist? You know, it yeah. really brought that to a whole other level of, yeah, because there is a back and forth of, is Beyonce a feminist? I mean, to the point, just recently, I looked at a tweet with Beyonce's new uh, line with Ivy Park, right. her little brand about, oh, is she a capitalist? Or, you know, and what right. does that mean? And, yeah. and it's kind of this whole other like, oh, wow, this is getting complicated. Mm-hmm. But it's mainly not that complicated because they just want to hate on successful Black women. End of story. Yeah. And it gets real, real shady, real quick. <laughs> I don't know how else to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but we do want to say, on the other hand, uh, Hubert describes the importance of friendship. And I think it was a beautiful sentiment. And I, I, I felt her. I felt her on this one because I was like, always growing up trying to be a good friend to the white girls. Now, of course, her experience and my experience was completely different, but it does feel oddly familiar when she was talking about trying to fit in mm-hmm. in a community and, and realizing you're still different. Mm-hmm. But she does talk about the importance of friendships with women and particularly, again, she talks about the case of black women who gave her what she calls, quote, homegirl interventions. And yeah, that's what we're talking about with being called a feminist. Basically calling you out on your or pushing you to examine potentially problematic beliefs. And I'm glad, I've definitely had those people in my life and I love it. The importance of friends who will not only support you, but give these interventions is front and center throughout the book. And she talks about that a lot. She also talks about growing out of friendships. Yeah. And again, like it was so familiar to me when she was talking about trying to fit in, being ousted essentially Mm -hmm. from a friend group because she wasn't good enough in their eyes and what that meant and felt for her and how it did build her up in her confidence or lack of confidence and trying to grow into herself. So it was really definitely relatable content. Yeah. And I, I love this quote about all of this that we're talking on. The thing I know today, after many cycles of homegirls, many more years of girl crushes, and a life of straight sexual activity, is that one can't truly be a feminist if you don't really love women. And loving women deeply and unapologetically is queer as It is erotic in the way that Audre Lorde talks about eroticism. It's an opening up, a healing, a seeing, and being seen. And she went on to expound on this in an interview for Bitch Media. I'm trying to think through queerness in a range of ways in the book. If we think about queerness as a resistance to the politics of normativity, whether that's whiteness as normative or straightness as normative, then there's something fundamentally queer about Black people making an intentional commitment to love each other and show up for each other in the fullness of our Blackness in a system that normalizes white supremacy and anti-Blackness. Also, I don't want to co-opt queerness from queer folks who are dealing daily with the realities of what it means to be a queer person. What I'm attempting to suggest is that queer folks have a lot to teach us about how to love each other better as Black people and Black women. This is a lesson I'm trying to take from being in community with queer folks and that I've learned from a Black feminist practice that's been deeply shaped by the labor of Black queer women. And I, I really I really loved all that. I love the example she gave of her and her friends, women friends, sending each other sexy pictures or messages and just getting affirmation on those. And I know in my friend groups, this is something that we've done, maybe not to the same extent, but it has been hugely uplifting, especially if you're not in a relationship and you're just looking for, you know, I just need, today, I just need someone to tell me I'm sexy or whatever it is. (laughs) I thought it was beautiful too. I think she did a great job. And when she talks about 
the openness that they have to do is and yeah and, and realizing that yeah like when I say I love you I truly mean I love you and I'm going to affirm you in in every way that I can mm-hmm. and just because you're not in a relationship or maybe you don't want to be in a relationship doesn't mean you don't want the same affirmations of yeah. being beautiful or sexy. And I right. think that's great. Yeah. And she quotes, one of feminism's biggest failure is failure to insist that feminism is first and foremost about truly, deeply, and unapologetically loving women. And absolutely, I think, I think that's why I was able to early on say that I was a feminist because I trusted women way more than I trusted men. Mm-hmm. I've been wronged by men too many times. Mm-hmm. I think in that sense of like growing up, I've been abused and or gone through some trauma that to me, my trust had to be in my friendships and my friendships were based on women. And so, yeah, I absolutely agree. Like I'll tell women and my friends, I love them faster than I will any man ever. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it, it is that level because to me, that is the wholeheartedness and those who have accepted me the most. Right. Like as many backstabbing things that may have happened, I've had more women that I could trust and love and and know that I could come to. Mm-hmm. And that's the things that I look at. I'm like, yeah, this is what feminism should be. Right. And I think because women, we have been sort of pitted against each other for so long and not trusted for so long. And of course, again, that adds with any marginalized identities you're adding on top of it. It is, it does feel like almost a radical revolutionary act. Just like, yeah, I'm just going to love women. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because recently in therapy, my therapist was talking about intimacy and I kept going back to like people I've dated and she was like, you can be intimate with anybody. You can be intimate in relationships with friends. Like it's just an opening and a vulnerability and that can be just as scary, but just as rewarding. Right. So kind of framing it in that way. And when you look at the example she gives with her friends of being, it's yeah, it's pretty open and intimate and yeah. trusting people with with yourself and, and your perhaps secrets or darkest things that you don't tell people. It is very beautiful. Yeah. And I do think, as we were saying earlier, I feel like so much gets lost in this man-hating aspect of feminism. Like either you're trying to assuage both men and women, it's not about hating men, that it does almost become about men again. Right, (laughs) right. right. (laughs) Or leaving out women due to racism or homophobia or other power dynamics. I think that that has been a pitfall of feminism historically, those Mm -hmm. kinds of things. And I think, yeah, putting women first... And that that should be <sighs> women and other marginalized people and just, you know, less about the man-hating thing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Less about men in general. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, you know what? Let's talk about men a bit more. Because <laughs> um, another big theme of this is toxic masculinity and the patriarchy, which is something that always comes up when we we have these conversations. And it does play into everything we're talking about. So here's another quote. Self-help gurus, pastors, and poets love to point to Black women's low self-esteem as the cause for all Black girl problems. Just learn to love yourself, we are told. But patriarchy is nothing if not the structurally induced hatred of women. If every woman and girl learned to love herself fiercely, the patriarchy would still be intact. It would demand that she be killed for having the audacity to think she was somebody. Individual blame isn't enough to solve the problem. Right. We go back to whether it's Beyonce or even way back when, talking about women who are confident in themselves being called everything but confident, whether it's bitch or sociopath, like any right. of those things. And it becomes this whole narrative like, wait, but I 
I'm trying to appreciate myself, but we're taught that we must have humility and humility means hating ourselves. Right. So and that's where does a good that come trait. In? Right. <laughs> and yeah, that's the that's the quality you need to be a feminine woman. Yeah. Is to hate yourself and to be humble and to be giving. And that's literally saying, <laughs> just kidding, we don't want you to actually care about yourself. Right. And then when you put it in that bigger format of the intersectional issues, oh my God. Yeah. And and there's so many conversations we could have off of this this alone. But one of the things that this quote reminded me of is also the kind of this idea that if you work hard enough, if you hustle hard enough, right. you'll succeed, which we know the system is not set up that way. <laughs> right, right. And then, that, oh, you won't fail. If you fail, it's on you. That's exactly. Whole, like, oh yep. my God, what? Yep. Just read these self-help books. Yeah. Work hard. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't right. work that way. Right, um, So we did want to run through some quick other themes that that were on here, starting with religion, because... Cooper does go into growing up religious and still being religious, kind of this tension between faith and feminism, which we've talked about before. And she is very clear that there is a space for religion with feminism. But she's also like, she is clear in the faults Mm -hmm. of religion. And that goes back to how she was able to figure out what feminism meant for her and how it looks for her and being able to recognize the good and the bad for her in religion and dismiss what isn't working, what is unhealthy, what is toxic, and then accept the things that are helpful and supporting and all those kinds of things. Right. I think she did a beautiful job in talking about fear and religion. And and she talks specifically about being taught not to be fearful and to trust in the Lord and all of these things. And it made me think about the fact I grew up in a very white religious home Mm -hmm. and their whole aspect is to be fearful constantly fearful and that i remember that no fear t-shirts when they came out my mother was angry my mother was angry because she was like you should be fearful of god like she made sure that i knew this and that was not allowed in our house but i think that's really telling because again i've talked about the fact that my family is very right-leaning to the point that it has become a problematic issue with my relationship with them that they base their life out of fear of losing something the mm-hmm. fear of power, which is kind of the basis of what white supremacy is, is always constantly being told, you're going to lose power, you're going to lose power, you should be afraid of these marginalized groups, specifically black groups. And I found that interesting as she was talking about her own aspects coming from a black religious household and my own aspects coming from a white religious household and how it's differing, but at the same time, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a whole different conversation we could talk about in sociology, (laughs) in itself, sociological idealists in the religion and the white supremacy, which we do want to talk about eventually. Yeah. But I think it's interesting that she talked about that because it kind of clicked on my end of my own experiences of like, huh, Mm -hmm. that is something. And and then we see that in politics. That's the driven force towards white communities. Be fearful that you're going to lose something. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, and then the fact that the black communities have had fear, but have to fight for it. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, it's this whole level of like, no, we can no longer be afraid. We must fight. It's just such an interesting, perplexing, complex issue. So like, it, it kind of, she brings up a very small portion of that, but it just had me thinking on that lines. Right. And something else that she discusses through the book is her experience with love and sex and and she did put schooling first and Mm -hmm. and feeling like maybe 
she missed out or her options were limited, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was interesting. She also had this whole thing of uh, dating while feminist. Yeah, Cooper is really open about her thoughts and experiences with dating, love, sex, and wanting or not wanting children. Uh, and actually, this is what she did talk about a little bit uh, while she was speaking at the venue that I attended. And she talked about the difficulty she had uh, dating as a Black woman, as a feminist, and backed up with statistics. She's completely not wrong and had the structural racism and misogyny, how all that plays in all of this. Yeah. Man, she goes into some things that I'm like, woo. I don't know if I could touch this about interracial dating and what that looks like and the connotations behind it. And we're not going to get too deep into this because we definitely are not the authority <laughs> in any least way of manner. But she is right on. I mean, there's a lot of like, oh, wow, yeah, oh, wow, yeah, that she talks about in this. And it's really complicated and a little bit discouraging sometimes. I mm-hmm. think I could see that too. And her statistics in itself is... <sighs> Things are disappointing. <laughs> Have you I don't know sighed? How else to say it. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, certainly, certainly. That's something as as someone who I don't date and I don't really want to date, but I've heard my especially in a pandemic, I've heard my friends feel like, you know, I I want this and I I feel like I don't have a lot of options and the, I'm limited. And how frustrating and like even just hurt they can be over mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I think, I don't think we talk about that enough. I think we turn it too often into like either you met your high school sweetheart and you did it, or I don't know, we, we turn it into women and their biological clock and you're racing against that. But there's like actual pain and like searching behind there. <laughs> oh my God. It's you have to be in a mindset to even start. Yeah, it's a conversation for another day, perhaps. But yeah, I mean, I think we talk about when we talk about being feminist and dating, trying to check off the boxes, right? And 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 truly having those people, it seems almost impossible. And I say those people as in the men who or the partner who you hope have. Mm-hmm a mindset is yours because it is complicated. And uh, honestly, 2016 made it a little more clear why those differences matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she she talks about that. She shares in the book her experiences dating men who knew all the right feminist things to say, but at the end of the day, weren't truly feminist. And I bet everyone listening to this show knows someone like that. Right. And how hard that can be when you've got these hopes that you really like somebody. Right. But you have these things that You're like, well, I damn it. Can't compromise on this. I can't. Right. Right. So that was a really, really interesting chapter. And then as as we close this out, we did want to return to rage because it was such a big piece of this book, the title, uh, and the power of it, of eloquent rage and specifically, and the power of black women's rage, because we see black women's rage fueling the suffragette movement, civil rights, uh, Me Too, Black Lives Matter. But she also talks about the the danger or destructiveness of misdirected rage, whether that is on yourself, because not everyone is worth your rage, which can be a very hard lesson to learn. But it will wear you down. (laughs) It will wear you down. Asking who or what is the real enemy here? Are you getting angry at at the correct, like, source? Just asking yourself those questions. This is another quote that I, I thought was really good. I'm not interested in a feminist project that only works to tear down things. Because we have to build things back, too, right? Right. 
And, right. and while the book is focused on rage, and I do want to say here, well, a lot of the things we've talked about are kind of discouraging, as you say, and, and heavy. But she's also, it, as we said, really funny. And yeah. it was... It's enjoyable. It's enjoyable, yeah. And there's plenty of like hope and upbeat things in there as well. And and in this case, the book, it ends on the importance of joy. Uh, not that the two are mutually exclusive. She makes that point. It doesn't mean like you can't be, you can't have like rage and joy. For example, taking joy at seeing what your rage is able to accomplish. <laughs> it's something that gets lost a lot when we're talking about activism and feminism and very important and inspiring to leave us with. Because I know we've talked before about burnout and just letting yourself get really really disheartened and taking those moments to find the good things, to find that joy, self-care, as we often say, that is important. One of the reasons she concentrates on relationships with women and female relationships is because that is part of our joy, Mm -hmm. whether it's to be angry together. Yes. (laughs) And having commonality to be angry together. It can bring us joy. Uh, I have a thing with a friend of mine. Oh, Kristen. Kristen, uh, who used to be the old co-host, mm-hmm. her sister Anna and I are really close. And we used to have a session called uh, Wine, where we would drink wine and just complain about whatever happened. <laughs> and it was joyful and delightful and therapeutic for us. Right. But it's okay. That means you are raging on something mm-hmm. to find that joy in that moment. Absolutely. <laughs> Big proponents yeah, of right? it. Yes. So definitely check this book out if you haven't already. And... Send us your next suggestions. Yeah. What should we read next? You can email us at stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You or on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. Thanks as always to our super producer, Christina. Thank you, Christina. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff Mom Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.